0: I kind of bring the physical and the neurodivergent disabilities um, into one exciting bubble of a person.
1: Hi, I'm Brooke Melhouse. Welcome to Disabled and Proud, the podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin. Each week, the show highlights an awesome disabled guest speaking about their own disability, why they're proud to be disabled, and why they're proud to be themselves. Dr. Hannah, welcome to Disabled and Proud. How are you today?
0: Hi, I'm, I'm good, thank you. I'm very excited to be doing this. This is such a joy. What a <laughs> lovely way to spend a morning.
1: What a nice way to spend a morning, right? It's like a little chit chat,
0: have a coffee, talk about some stuff that really annoy us, but here we are. Sounds like a dream. Let's Let's do this thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the first question that I like to ask absolutely every single guest is, mm-hmm.
0: how do you refer to your disability? So, I mean, I've got a bit of a collection of them, which livens things up somewhat. Um, So (laughs) just, you know, couldn't just make do with one. No, no, no. Um, So I've got Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. an ambulatory wheelchair user. So um, sometimes on a stick, sometimes on crutches, sometimes bouncing Mm -hmm. off the walls, often bouncing off the walls. Um, And I spend a fair bit of time in either a power chair or a manual chair. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also have ADHD, which again, leaves me bouncing off the walls. So, yeah, yeah, I kind of bring the physical and the neurodivergent disabilities um, into one exciting bubble of a person, I like to think. But yeah, so very confidently and proudly disabled. But um, yeah, it's nice to have a variety of acronyms. We play acronym bingo in my household. Um, (laughs) So EDS, ADHD, LGBTQ, anything else, uh, throw it at us.
1: Everything and anything. Let's just welcome it all in, why not? Life is better when there's a bit more variety. You know exactly, I mean? particularly if it's all in one person. I like to think, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I I love that because I like I have friends who have EDS, and I know for a fact that being diagnosed with EDS is not as simple as it seems. Because oh no no no, no. it's incredibly. From my knowledge, is that it's incredibly underfunded. It's mm-hmm. not as rare as we think. But the symptoms that align with EDS are symptoms. Well, I put symptoms in air quotes mm-hmm. as to what women would just be expected to just go through as women. So yeah. Like sore joints. You're a woman. It's coming up to a period. Sore joints. Normal. Yeah. Like, yeah. Super bendy. You're a woman. <laughs> like there are so many there are so many symptoms of it that are just that align so much with with just like just having to get on with being a woman which yeah. is problematic in and of itself
0: but how was your EDS journey what was that like for you the eds journey was um it was a bit of a strange one i mean even by mm-hmm. eds standards we all have weird journeys to diagnosis and we're often diagnosed a lot later than we potentially should be yeah. um i was diagnosed when i was i think i was about 26 27 Um, And I was already at medical school. So I'd been that person, shockingly neurodivergent, who'd done three undergraduate degrees. And medicine was my third, Um, I had completed them, which for an ADHD I'm quite chuffed by, Um, but yeah, medicine was my third. And I would decided to run a half marathon in memory of my brother who died while I was also at med school. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way I was processing that grief was I was gonna run this half marathon, raise lots of money, box ticked very medical yeah. crack on with your life um except my right kneecap started disappearing right round behind my knee um like would fully dislocate uh, while I was running and other joints started like really not enjoying the running lark <laughs> at all yeah. um and it got to the stage where i managed to complete the half marathon because i'm bloody stubborn and probably bloody stupid if we're honest yeah um did it, but my joints were not recovering at all. And I was really lucky in that because I was at med school, I had a lecture, um, well, kind of teaching session one day with a rheumatologist who was teaching us how to do hand exams. Um, And she was examining my hand as a demonstration was just like, Hannah, you're really weirdly bendy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. I always have been. I was that kid who did ballet for like 20 years or whatever. Like I've always been yeah. that bendy person. Um, and she said, do you have any joint problems? I was like, yeah, actually, like my GP keeps giving me more and more like naproxen to try and help manage my pain. I've just mm-hmm. bought my first walking stick. Nobody really seems to know what's going on. And she was kind of like, I think you need to go and see a colleague of mine. So got myself referred into rheumatology and I did that medical student thing where like we diagnose ourselves with something new every week we are all massive hypochondriacs because you can't learn about all these terrifying diseases and not sit there one night like two in the library going oh my god do I have schistosomiasis? like two plus two is not making four like what is wrong (laughs) yeah exactly um so I diagnosed myself um and kind of Turned up at this room and told you appointment, going. Well, I think I have Ehlers Danlos syndrome type three, and she's like, "Yeah, yeah, you definitely do." (laughs) Crack on, Um, and I was so gutted because I told my mates at med school because you're not even really taught about EDS med school because it's Mm -hmm. considered too rare. Um, I'm so like, if this comes up in finals, every single one of you bastards owes me a pint. Yeah, because if you know anything about this it's because of this bird yeah. um uh, it didn't and I've never forgiven the examiners because I would have been having a right party at the end of exams yeah. um but yeah so it's a bit of a weird route and I think if I hadn't been at med school like god knows what would have happened like if I hadn't yeah. kind of had that person stop and take the time to go is everything right with you mm. um then, yeah, I don't even know whether I'd have got a diagnosis now or been able to continue with my career or got the kind of equipment yeah. and stuff I need, which is terrifying. And yet mm-hmm. it's a situation that many people with EDS do find themselves in, because, as you say, we think it's a lot more common than we've previously anticipated we think it might even for the hypermobility type be like one in 500 now um so it's actually a lot more common than we think it is and it's a lot more systemic than we think it is so it's you know really closely linked to neurodivergency weird it's really closely linked to muscle activation syndrome weird guts like there's loads of stuff that kind of come hand in hand with eds Mm -hmm. and we're only now starting to unpick that um and as more and more people are finding out about the condition more and more people are going oh my god I think that's me and because that's happening at exactly the same time as the NHS is utterly broken um they're then really struggling to get the support they need so it's we've got this kind of like absolute nightmare situation where we have a lot of people who need a lot more support than they're getting or at least need a diagnosis and they're not getting it yeah and that's yeah pretty horrendous because I can't get over how privileged I was and how lucky I was at that point.
1: Your perspective on all of these topics is actually something that I'm really looking forward to talking about. Because obviously you work within medicine Mm -hmm. and you're disabled and you're also neurodivergent. And particularly as like female presenting, you have ADHD, you have EDS. Both (laughs) two of things, like the two things that women most often get called hypochondriacs for. Oh, yeah. You have. And yes. uh, but like to get to these, but to get to these diagnoses, it's not an easy path. Because I know no, so fine. many people who have fought for their EDS diagnosis. I know so many people who are currently fighting for their ADHD diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And being in this system as well and actually having first hand experience of how broken it is, because I'm not I'm not afraid to say that the NHS is broken. Yeah, it, definitely. It's, is. it's it's a commonly known fact. And and you know, if, if you're sat there thinking, it's going to be saved and it's going to save itself and I think you might need to have a bit of a reality check and I'm really really sorry if that's news to you but like this is the situation that we're in yeah but I wonder with your your EDS diagnosis not like the most traditional route you kind of diagnosed yourself and then just got like a thumbs up which I kind of love
0: yeah with your
1: ADHD diagnosis how how was that and how did that kind of present itself as something that you wanted to go down the route
0: of? So that was a bit more of a nightmare, to be honest. Looking back, I come from an incredibly neurodivergent family and my brother's since been diagnosed. Like, mm-hmm. I speak to my parents and both of them are kind of like, oh, you clearly got this from your mum or you clearly got this from your dad. And I just like, team. Maybe it's
1: both of you. Really? Really. <laughs>
0: um, but I think because we were all like that, um, for us, it was the ways that we behaved were quite mm-hmm. normal because yeah. that was all we really knew. And so through school, I was that kind of very intellectually achieving, comp educated. So it's kind of like, right, Hannah's fine. She's bright. She loves books. She'll be okay. Um, And so I was always, you know, well behaved. I have hyperactive and inattentive type. So I was that kid who, yeah, I'd probably doze off in the back of the classroom or be completely off, you know, thinking of something else. But I was intellectually bright enough to keep up um Mm -hmm, so nobody ever really picked up on it um I mean I look back now and I'm like I did every club going apart from sports because I wasn't very sporty (laughs) I did do ballet modern tap jazz like every orchestra every choir I was always in the music like I was that drama geek um and so now I look back and I'm sort of like my god firstly how did my parents get all of these children around to all of these activities every day like well done them ludicrous my mum's a wheelchair user like I'm like Absolute kudos. Yeah. Um, and now I look back and it's like, of course, I had ADHD, but I was only actually diagnosed when I was 34 and I'm 36 now. Um, so it was wow. really recent. And I'd got through my I did my first degree in English and theology with Arabic. I really struggled with Arabic shockingly mm-hmm. it's quite a hard language. I, wa- I, like, I wonder why <laughs> mm. um but the way I I would just get completely overwhelmed whenever we had a test mm. to the extent I'd have panic attacks and they had to put me in my own room for all my exams yeah um because I was just I just couldn't I would just completely freeze my brain would just go no no can't do this can't do this
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and then I managed to get through that degree then went and did pediatric nursing which was okay because there weren't any exams or there was one and you could take like all of the notes in on not a piece of paper I was like dream
1: i love Um, those
0: exams where
1: you had like you're allowed an a4 sheet of notes my writing would be like this big so i could fit everything that i needed to put on it
0: so thought of that i mean for my little wonky brain it was the dream i can tell you (laughs) um And then I did med school where I struggled, like I found it really hard, but I always put it down to the fact that I hadn't got any science A-levels because I was coming Mm -hmm. in as a post-grad who'd taken a different route. I had never studied science. So I felt like the reason I was studying was so hard. And the reason I was struggling so much was because I was like just behind because I hadn't got the background everybody else had. Um, But when I started my GP training, so I've been a doctor now for seven years. I will hopefully Mm -hmm. be a fully qualified GP in the next six months. Oh, um but crossed. you have to do thank you but you have to do two big exams one of them is a clinical one where you film yourself basically seeing patients and send them in and they go yes you're kosher you're safe well done mm. tracking well fabulous past that one flying colors no bother first time but the written exam was horrific um yeah. I failed it the first time and in fairness I probably hadn't done enough work for that one um yeah. but failed it the first time fine like one in four of us do not a problem um the second time I failed it by like one mark um but I put a lot more work in and I was devastated like absolutely Mm -hmm. broken was sort of like can I even be a doctor what is this because I'd never really failed anything before and I was like what where did my brain go um and it was at that point actually that one of my supervisors who had a special interest in neurodivergency kind of contacted me and said look Hannah 15 percent of people who fail this exam turnout or more than that turn out to be neurodivergent and we think around 15% of GPs are neurodivergent yeah. um, because actually it's quite a neurodivergent friendly specialty you get a new patient to play with every 10 minutes my brain yeah. can't get bored in 10 minutes I mean it can but it shouldn't um, yeah. so actually a lot of us tend to go into general practice because it's so good for a portfolio career you get a lot of new patient turnover Variety. all of this kind of stuff And she said, like, I think you should get an assessment. And I was like, fine, you know, let's see. I'd always kind of suspected I was, but I wasn't that bothered about getting the assessment. And then when I got it and they explained to me what it really meant and the impact it really had, it completely changed the way I viewed myself. And I was so lucky because, again, so many people fight for a diagnosis. I was basically just sent to a service the nhs paid for because they were sort of like we need you to stay as a doctor this is how we're going to get you to do it is get Uh you properly assessed and get you the support you need and and most people don't get that either um i mean i still when i got diagnosed had to try and get medications privately Mm -hmm. i live in york uh where you can't get adhd assessments or medications now um and there's a whole legal battle going through on that one um so i got meds privately got through the exams um thank goodness so now I'm all done on that front and I'm just ticking the boxes yeah. until I qualify but it again I was only diagnosed when I was because of the privilege of, the of being a medic
1: yeah
0: um and I've had doctors prior to my diagnosis go don't be ridiculous Hannah you can't have ADHD um you have three bachelor's degrees four bachelor's degrees um and I'm like yeah but they're all in different subjects did, yeah. did you not think that maybe that in itself was a sign yeah. that there's something interesting going on here where i can't make a decision about my career like you know so so often i've had very highly qualified clinicians go you can't be a doctor and have adhd you can't have got this far and have adhd and you're like well i did yeah help help yeah. now <laughs> so it's yeah so it's so frustrating so
1: interesting it's it's just it's fascinating isn't it how it presents so differently in men and women mm-hmm. and i think when we think about Because I quite often sit there and I'm like, I 110% have ADHD. Like, There's no way that I don't. And there's no way that I'd be able to do all of the interviews that I do and not think that I had it. Because I sit there and I'm like, I have a new interview every other day and like it's mm. that it's that constant variety you're so right like i love that i'm like okay i can't get bored of this which is why i'm able to do like over 100 episodes of this show because
0: <laughs> <laughs> you just keep i think like it's the traits of it are so interesting and yeah. i i mean i find the whole kind of like disability superhero narrative really challenging and can be very damaging mm. at times but i think that doesn't mean we can't appreciate the skills and the nuances that our individual disabilities give us as people and the strengths yeah. we get from those. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm great in an AE department. I am bloody amazing in the emergency. If, you know, somebody falls over in the street in front of me, I am right there, like rolling my sleeves yeah. up, cracking on. That's how my, where my brain is happiest. So in a way that actually makes me quite good as a doctor. I am not going to freak yeah. out, um, but if something, you know, kind of more gradual, slow happens, then then I can't process it. Then I just sit there and get overwhelmed by the most basic form that I will put off for five months and then it'll take me five minutes when I do it. And it's those kind of little things of just going, you know what? ADHD is a right pain in the ass. And that's okay. It's okay to say that. It also makes me who I am and I quite like who I am and I like the strength it's given me yeah and I think as disabled people we struggle so much with this culture where we're trapped between those two narratives Mm -hmm. either your body your brain lets you down you're not good enough you're faulty whatever it is or oh my god you're like an actual superhero that's so cool you inspire me so much and we live in the middle of that and I think it's so damaging for our mental health when we're constantly trying to unpick our identities within those two contrasting narratives all the time.
1: Yeah, because there's no real space for average Joe, the disabled person. That doesn't exist. And equally, what I find incredibly interesting is that disabled people, like, as you said, we have two very different narratives, but it's either you're a good disabled person and you're the Paralympian Mm -hmm. and you're the superhero and you do everything under the sun, or it's that you're destitute, you're down and out,
0: You you're a benefit scrounger.
1: scrounger. Yeah. Benefit scrounger, like you don't you don't do anything, like you could do so much more with your life than what you do. And there is literally no in between. And so, like, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't feel like you're down and out, but you equally don't feel like you're Paralympian, my God, you're so fine. Welcome to the right club.
0: Like you can be
1: you can be so bang average and yet be so happy about being disabled. Like that, that is completely fine. But we don't hear that narrative ever. Because we have for so long have been so scared to elevate disability in a way that makes the average disabled person just look like an average person without being like, oh my God, their life must be so much harder because they're disabled. I'm not arguing that it isn't. But what I am saying is that it's okay if you're like so bang average and disabled, like you don't need to prove that you're a good disabled person. Like the idea of proving yourself in itself is horrendous. But Mm -hmm. this is the society that we live
0: in, unfortunately. (laughs) most definitely could not agree more it's yeah it's exhausting it is just yeah. exhausting it really is so how
1: how has your disability multiple impacted your career and and how how you navigate your career and and the way that you go about it because obviously because you work in medicine and as you said like without having the privilege of working in medicine you might not have been diagnosed with your disabilities but how has that now impacted your career in terms of how do you navigate that space because in my brain i'm thinking works in nhs works in hospital or works in gp surgery uses a wheelchair how does that work because what's it like you know if you're on like a hospital shift or like you know you're in the wards and stuff are they the most wheelchair accessible like do we do we have these conversations (laughs) in the nhs as well as
0: outside of the nhs is what i'm really wondering yeah so it's It has definitely improved since Mm -hmm. I started. So these are all the questions I was asking myself when I was first diagnosed. So, you know, I started my heart, my medical degree running half marathons. I finished it graduating in a wheelchair. Like I had no bloody idea Mm -hmm. if this was possible. At that point, I think I knew of one other doctor who practiced in a wheelchair nationally. Um, And they, I think they did exist. I think we've existed for a lot longer but it's always that kind of apocryphal oh I once met a doctor in a wheelchair and you're like cracking congratulate people will stop me in like three in the morning on anything go you know I once met a doctor in a wheelchair I was like congratulations now you've met a second should we get on equally like do you know that it wasn't me like it wasn't me that you've met before (laughs) (laughs) so often because I don't know that yeah I get mistaken for other doctors in wheelchairs all the time yeah It's really because I did a lot of work on a kind of like national medical level with the British Medical Association and stuff. And people constantly confuse me with other wheelchair using doctors. I'm like, no, no, I'm the really gobby queer one. Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, um, We're like Barbies. Um, So, yeah, it's been a real challenge. And it meant that when I first qualified, I didn't know how to make it work as a doctor in a wheelchair mm-hmm. nobody around me did either so we had to kind of yes. have this really iterative process of working out how we were going to do this so you know I turned up for my first day and my boss who was a lovely woman went oh it didn't tell me about this oh and I was like um are we talking about the fact I'm a bit ginger uh, what no. are we talking about here no. no okay what which part of me is the problem here and um it was just that nobody had thought about it and it was quite disconcerting because particularly in your first couple of years of medicine you're almost entirely on hospital jobs you're moving jobs every four months so you're working with new people every mm. four months and you're having to kind of reinvent yourself or reintroduce yeah. yourself and all of those immediate reactions that people have of oh my god like you're gonna hold us back you're gonna slow us down you're not gonna be able to do this as fast and actually, you know, I'm really fortunate in that because I've always been quite a gobby person, I refused to listen to the whole kind of like, mm-hmm. you're going to be a problem, you're going to be a challenge. And I'm just like, no, look, I can't push. the We have like computers on trolleys that people, doctors push around and type in yeah. on ward rounds. I couldn't push them and push myself. I'd literally only have one hand and go around in, in circles yeah. like it wasn't going to work. So I it's like, just get me a laptop and put it on my lap. Yeah and honestly it was like i'd just invented fire they were like oh that that's really clever so like, it's literally called a laptop guys like yeah. we can we can do this. Um, but it got to the point where all the other doctors were really jealous because they were having to go to each new ward, log on to it, find and log on to a new computer for every single patient on an on-call. Yeah. And you can have like 10 of those in an hour at least. Um, and I was just like rolling around the hospital with my own computer, just kind of like getting on with it. And so in reality, yeah. I was a lot faster. Uh-huh. And I had, you know, senior clinicians go, of course you can't do cardiac arrest. So I'm sort of like, I actually do wheelchair racing. I'm really bloody fast um like I don't have a problem with g- I'm the first one at the cardiac arrest the problem is that I'm the first one and that's terrifying and that's <laughs> that's the problem because you're the
1: first one where yeah. realistically people who are, have like two feet who can run should be quicker than you mm-hmm. but like this is the state of the NHS <laughs> yeah but like
0: I was just you know I was very very fast and so I'm sort of like uh-huh. yes no I can get there and I can do this stuff and it was I felt like I kind of constantly had to prove myself, um, which has been a challenge. And I've learned ways around it. Like now, if I'm starting a new job, I will go in a couple of months before and say, right, can I have a role around the building? Can I work out what I can reach, what I can't reach? If you've got pedal bins, that's going to be a problem if I'm in my chair, you know, all of this stuff. And it means that the transition into that new role is a lot less stressful for me. And it gives people time to work out all of the challenges around it because people do freak out. I had a job... Like on less than 48 hours notice, they turned around, they said, we're not gonna be able to facilitate Hannah coming in, despite my having been for a roll around. And um, that was a real low point um, Mm -hmm. in the career because it was the first time anyone had just straight out gone, we can't do this on next to no notice. And nobody seemed to understand why it was so upsetting. I'm sort of like, I don't, firstly, I don't know if I have a job in two days time. Like, am I still gonna get paid? Do I stay where I am? Like, how does this work? Um, And secondly, they've literally turned around and said they can't facilitate me. Mm -hmm. Like they probably never said that about another trainee, just the one in the wheelchair. And nobody considered the kind of emotional and psychological impact that had on me. I'm sort of like, it's not because I'm not a good doctor. It's not because I can't treat patients. It's because you're worried about your building and my wheelchair. That's when you become a health and safety hazard. Yeah. And I'm just sitting there going, great, nice, nice to know. Um, you'd rather not have a doctor than have a wheelchair using one. Yeah. That's where you're at. Um, And that really stung. That's been really challenging. Um, But now I've got a lot more kind of, a lot more resilient about it. And I think working in general practice in particular, you're working in a very small team so they know me I've been at my current practice for two years which is super lucky and not normal um and so they know me really well they know what I can do they know that some days I'll turn up with no stick and bounce off the walls generally because I've left my stick in my partner's car um some days (laughs) I'll be in my power chair the patients know that about me and they often now don't so much freak out about that though they do occasionally walk into my room and go oh my god I'm so sorry I didn't realize there was a patient in here and walk back out again and I was like no no definitely doctor No, they're paying me to be here. Uh, They'd have to. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it has had a massive impact and it continues to. And there'll always be things that come out at me that I don't expect. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also meant that I really feel very confident having a portfolio career. So I don't just do medicine. I speak, I write, I do all of this other stuff because my body won't allow me to work more than three days a week clinically. Uh, And actually, I think that's how I've managed to survive the last few years and you know pandemic and all that sort of stuff because I've had that space and I've been able to build that mental resilience to an extent, um, which a lot of trainee doctors don't have that opportunity, mm-hmm. don't have that ability to say, actually working full-time is breaking me. So I'm not going to, yeah. um, for me, it was just a very easy, well, of course, you're in a wheelchair, you won't work full-time. And whilst that narrative really annoys me, it was also really helpful for me. So swings and it's,
1: roundabouts. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a really interesting one. Cause what I, what I heard a lot of what you just said is that actually it's all about adaption and being able <laughs> and open to adaption. Because I think as disabled people, sometimes we can get it wrong. And a lot of people don't yeah. want to admit that. But we can just because we scream and shout about something doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen yeah. rightly or wrongly. But we have to be willing to adapt to what, you know, two sides kind of have to meet in the middle, which is uncomfortable <laughs> for the people who we're working with. It's also uncomfortable for ourselves. But equally, we have to be willing to be in a position where we're able to adapt to make the solution fit because it might not be the best fit, but it's a progression and it is a solution. And it is nine times out of ten out about adaptation because you know, in disability is so individual. What works for one person is not going to work for the other. That's that's not how this works. Like it's not like, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, you don't get a handbook. If you acquire a disability <laughs> or you're you you you're born disabled, you don't get a handbook that says, oh, look at this section. Um, Look under limb difference. Subsection C mm-hmm. is going to be where you're going to find all the best adaptions for you. Or, you know, if you have an amputation or oh, look under section C um, under F mm-hmm. and that's going to be where <laughs> the best prosthesis is for you in your area. Like that doesn't exist. Yeah. So it's very much about finding and adapting what works for you. And also, if that handbook was written, it would be out of date by the t- time of print. So it would be yeah. completely pointless. Um, yeah. But it is all about adaption. And it's, and it's about being open to being willing to adaption. Whereas a lot of people don't like that information because it means that they might have to put a bit of work into it. But equally, you know, even when you scream and shout, and yes, it's exhausting, do not get me wrong, it is such hard work. But sometimes it doesn't always work in our favor. And like, that's okay as well. It just means that you have to have a little moment where you can rest come back and then scream a little bit louder.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important that we claim our soft power. Like, you know, I am very, I'm an ex-trade unionist. I'm very good at being the angry lefty person in the room going, this is not good enough, fix this, that, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I do that, I've done that, I will continue to do that. But I think it's really important that we also acknowledge that sometimes, unfortunately, if we scream and shout all the time, it becomes background noise to the people that we need to most hear it. And what I've discovered is that the more I'm just kind of visibly out there being a visibly disabled doctor and talking about all of this stuff, the more visibly disabled doctors then join the profession. And like Mm -hmm. I have medical students, wannabe medical students contacting me like most weeks going, I really want to do this. How do I do this? I've got a disability, whatever it might be, is this possible? And the more, like those of us who were already in can support the next generation and be visibly there, the more of us there will be. And you know, it's the power Mm -hmm. and the union in it. It's like the more of us there are kind of all gently going, no, stop putting pedal bins in disabled toilets. The more that conversation happens, the more things will change because the more yeah. of us there are. And it's about kind of, that's why I find the disabled community so bloody marvellous is because we do come together and we work at these things together more and more. And social media has been such a fantastic tool for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's tempting as it is to constantly scream and shout and God knows I will continue to do that sometimes just being there being visible and gently pushing back all the time might feel like it's taking longer but it might also be more successful yeah
1: sometimes slow and steady really does win the race and that's yeah. not always particularly in our social media era where instant gratification is instant it's not always the most popular thing to say and a lot of people really struggle with that idea that actually sometimes a good thing can take a long time yeah most their opinion but here we are <laughs>
0: I knew we'd be controversial, bro. I knew this was going to (laughs) happen.
1: I think I spend my days doing this and I'm like, I love these conversations, but there's got to be someone out there who listens
0: to this and is like, this girl deserves a slap. Yeah, possibly. But I think, you know, if we all agreed, we're 16 million of the bloody population in the UK. We're not a homogenous group. No, We're not, not going to agree all. on everything. We're not going to agree on the best way to do things. We're, you know, a vastly intersectional group. So, you know, the way we approach things as two white women, you know, we can't claim to represent everybody.
1: Community, no, and, not at all. yeah, we
0: never would. And you know, my experiences as a queer woman are going to be very, very different to those of a straight person. And I think it's about kind of accepting all of that and going here. Are, here's what I think. What do you think? I'm passing the speaking stick or baton or whatever it is and going, right, let's actually have a conversation about this and accept that none of us know all the answers or the best way to proceed all the time. And we're going to be wrong and that's okay. Mm -hmm.
1: And that's why I think it's so interesting when we look at, so I was having this conversation earlier this week about diversity panels and Mm -hmm. actually quite often when we look at diversity panels, they're not actually diverse at all. Yeah. Quite often it tends to be whitewashed and, yeah, we, we we look at this particularly like through a disability lens. Like, disability is not all white. That's not how it yeah. works. And disability is the only thing in this entire world that does not discriminate. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're mm-hmm. from, what your gender is, what your sexuality is. Like, it literally does not matter. You can fall over in the next five minutes and become disabled, and now you're part of the club. Yeah, welcome. We have t-shirts. We do actually, <laughs> and we <laughs> have so a really good podcast. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but. My, like, my point in that is yeah. that actually, even when we're trying to talk about diversity, we have to include everyone. And sometimes yeah. that's, it's not always the easiest thing to do. And that's not right at all. Mm-hmm. But when we're looking at diversity panels, and, and I was having this conversation is that actually, sometimes it's not right. To have a diversity panel that is only talking about disability because we need to talk about the intersections of disability yes. and, and where does it cross over yeah. into gender where does it cross over into sexuality where does it cross over into business like these these mm-hmm. conversations are uncomfortable but they don't happen often enough
0: yeah as somebody like so i do a lot of edi consultancy and get to travel around the world to talk to people which is great yeah. but i spend so much of my time going don't have a separate disability panel and then all of the rest of your stuff because it just others us even more. And you go to so many events where it's kind of like, and we've remembered to be nice to the disabled person. So here's a group of disabled people talking about their experiences. And you're kind of like, why aren't we on all the other panels with all the other people? Like, why aren't we trusted to have views on all the other stuff and our disability to not necessarily be the headline in that, Mm -hmm. but be able to bring our experiences as a disabled person in that field. And it's kind of about pushing back on those narratives. It's like, great, well done. We've seen a lot of progress in five years and that you've remembered that disabled people should at least be in the room. That's great. Now, can we we be in the room in the same way as everybody else is? Yeah. Like, is that too much to expect? And in many organisations and many companies, that still is. It's very much like, yeah, well, we did International Day of Disabled People on the 5th of December and we got a speaker in and it was lovely and we'll get another one next year. Um, And until then, we're done. Yeah. cracking.
1: Great. What about, what about how do we like track these changes that are meant to be taking place, particularly around these conversations? How, how do we do that? Yeah. And and quite often they're not, it's not even thought about. So yeah, it's like, it's again, a very, very interesting topic because you're right. We shouldn't just have separate panel talks on disability. They should just like naturally mm. be included in the conversation because if they're not, you're completely missing out a whole spectrum of people. Yeah. And like, we do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's let's you know, really have a look at what we're doing and, and, and start to assess where the problems lie in that. Because yeah. don't get me wrong, it's great to have a panel of disabled people. Fantastic. I love it when we get to all chat. Yeah. But sometimes it's not always about our disability and we can bring to the table a lot more than just talking about our experiences as disabled people.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, there's still a lot of work to do in the old EDI field, but it is fascinating as a result. <laughs> I like to think
1: that through any form of hardship you kind of learn something at the end of it, which is not always the most favourable way to look at hardship, but it's the one that makes sense most for me. And I was just wondering, is there a piece of advice or, I don't know, something that you would tell yourself after going through hardship that actually when you look back and look upon reflection, you've learned something about yourself from it?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, so, you know, I've had a slightly weird and wonderful and colourful life. Um, both kind of personally, professionally, disability-wise, everything. Mm -hmm. I think there's a whole load of stuff. There's firstly kind of learn to say no. Um, As a disabled person, as someone with ADHD, I tend to get very excited by every new opportunity, every email, everything that comes my way, which Mm -hmm. is great. And I'm so privileged to have those opportunities, but I tend to want to say yes to all of them. And it's something I'm really working on a lot is trying to learn to say no, because I have burnt myself out to a massive crisp on a number of occasions because I just couldn't, I didn't want to let people down. I was so worried that people wouldn't come back and ask me again in the future. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. Like if somebody likes you and wants you for an event, if you can't do X, Y, Z on that day, rather than breaking your neck, trying just say no and they'll all, Almost always call you back. So, I think learning to say no and being a bit more strategic
1: about Mm -hmm. what my
0: actual goal is with doing all this stuff. So, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years thinking about what I actually want to achieve with the work I do. And at the end of the day, if I had to crystallize it down, and it's a really good exercise, I encourage everybody to try. At the end of the day, for me, I want the next generation of disabled young people, of queer young people coming through to go to ha- find their lives are a bit easier because of the work I've done. Yeah. And I want them to find lives a bit easier and to kind of look at me and go, you know what, if that wonky gobby bird can do this, I'm going to be just fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that when I start looking at things through that lens and going, right, where does this take me in terms of that goal? It becomes a lot easier to go, this is something that looks great and that I'll probably really enjoy, but it's not going to get me there it's not going to benefit that goal of mine. And so it's not the right thing for me to do right now. doesn't mean it won't be in the future, but learning to do that, I think is really important. And I saw a great Michael Caine thing recently where he said, use the difficulty. And it was all about like when he was learning to act and something would go wrong on stage, how you learn to respond to that. And so you know, I've had some pretty horrible experiences where, you know, I've lost two of my brothers. My dad has terminal cancer. There's lots of really tough stuff that we all experience mm-hmm. in our lives. And it's important to take the time to grieve those and process those. But at the same time, it's about kind of looking back and going, right, what have I learned from that? Mm-hmm. What would I do differently next time? Because there can always be a next time. Um, and how how am I going to use that to make things better for the next group of people that go through that yeah and I think if you can take those difficulties and use them then it doesn't feel like it's in vain it doesn't feel like it's just some horrible awful fatalistic thing that happened to you it's something that you went you know what this is terrible this is crap this has ruined everything but where am I going with it this is the card I've been dealt what next what's next yeah so yeah I think that's probably what I'd tell younger me but um ADHD, so goodness only knows what I tell them tomorrow. Um <laughs> But I think that's a really like what you said about it not being in vain is actually
1: a really important thing to like sit down and consider because I think a lot of people feel very selfish when they like upon reflection and they're like, I'm just wallowing and like I'm just doing this for myself. But actually if you can if you can almost like pull something out of the end of it and be like, Hey, yeah, you're right, it was absolutely atrocious what I went through and it was bad but like you said there can always be a next time if you can look back at that and be like actually I did that really well and I'm incredibly proud of myself for handling that way I did that well that's a skill that I have okay so how can I flourish that skill a bit more in a positive way not in like a tragic way but Mm -hmm. how can I how can I you know enforce in like enforce a skill that I've got in a more positive light and how can I use that for the betterment of other people then it's never in vain and actually we kind of need to realise that sometimes we just have to go through a bit of shit to get to the good and again in this whole Instagram instant gratification era again widely unpopular opinion
0: wildly (laughs) thing. people don't like to hear that no but I think you know I see a lot of people coming through my clinic because you know at the moment 50 to 80% of the work I do as a GP involves mental health in some way Like that's the nature of the work at the moment. Um, And so many kind of come in going, look, I've been through X, Y, and Z. It's been really terrible. And I've always got through this, but now I'm really struggling. and I don't understand why, but it's really bad. And I'm like, okay, when we go through horrible stuff, we've kind of attached this pride to putting it in a box and getting through it. And you can say, I got through this. Look at me. I did this because you've put it in a box and you've never unpacked that box. Boxes from those experiences, never stay closed forever. And sod's law, the next time a terrible experience comes along or the time after that, or the time after that, at some point, that pile of boxes is going to fall down and it's all going to come out and bite you on the ass. Yeah, And I know because I've been there. And I have a very wonderful therapist who's spending a lot of time trying to sort it out. Um, Because we have this culture of you have to just get through. Terrible things happen to everyone. That's really awful. But the process of unpicking it and the process of going, right, this was shit. This was horrific. What did I learn from It's scary as hell. But Mm. it means that you A, process it so that box is unpacked and it won't come and bite you on the ass so much later. Might still nibble a bit, but it won't bite. Um, But also it means you can take the time to look at it and go, right, where do I go next? Mm -hmm. How do I take those skills on? How do I take that learning experience on? And, you know, I'd spent my entire childhood in and out of hospitals with various family members. I never planned to become a doctor, but it was through spending a lot of time with brothers in hospital. that I went, actually, that job looks really cool. Yeah. And now here I am. Mm -hmm. and yes I wish I didn't have to lose two brothers to learn that but if that's where it's taken me then at least I know that something good has come out of it and hopefully along Mm -hmm. the way I've helped a lot of other people that wouldn't have been helped otherwise in the same way
1: yeah so
0: yeah I think it's about kind of going life is awful life can be bad but how do we process that and take it apart and not being scared to do so um or at least making sure you have the support to do so as you go
1: yeah exactly that and I think I think what you said about having the support with you and, and particularly as disabled people, because I read, I was reading, and I know this personal experience is that mental health, when it comes to disability, we, we need to have the conversation around internalized ableism because quite mm-hmm. often we're so unaware of how much it dictates our mental health, yeah. but having a support system, whether that be a therapist or someone that you can talk to in a safe environment, about that experience is invaluable. Yeah. But someone who understands, and I'm not saying like understands because they've been through it, but can like cognitively process as yeah. to why internalised ableism is such an issue is like, it's absolutely invaluable.
0: It's massive. And that's why our community matters so much. Like I'm not always going to have the answers and actually having a disabled friend to go, mate, this is awful. And they'll go, Yeah. Yeah, no, it it is. And having that and I think, you know, as we see more and more disabled authors coming through, I'm seeing more and more of that as well, because finally, our experiences are being written down. And you look at, you know, people like Lucy Webster and her book, and you're just like, oh, I'm not the only one, we all get this. Mm -hmm. And that makes such a difference having that community and having that shared experience, even if it's different and nuanced it's huge for our mental health it's huge for our identity because it feels like all of us have to recreate our identities if and when we become disabled um and that's a difficult process that we're not guided through as you say there's no guidebook so no exactly yeah that community you're you're
1: literally left to fend for yourself
0: and Mm -hmm. i think that must
1: i think about because obviously i my life i don't know anything other than disability like i was born disabled I didn't acquire my disability. There was no tragedy around about how I, you know, quote unquote became disabled or acquired my disability. Mm -hmm. But if you suddenly acquire your disability through whatever circumstances and you don't have or you can't find your disabled community, like, please, please just find one person. Please just find one person. And like, and just, just, you know, have a little chat because I think having the disabled community in my life has radically changed it in all yeah. the best way possible because there are certain things that I used to think I was like oh I don't think that's like quite quite normal or quite right and now I'll text like a whole bunch of people being like um this is ableism isn't it and they're like <laughs> yes that is that is someone being ableist and I'm like okay we need like a just, buzzer
0: I kind of like is it ableism yes it always is and it always is I just really want a loud buzzer or a gong something like
1: that you know <laughs> Like a smoke. What's it called? Like you know, when they used to light the fires, and like
0: the smoke would like was it like smoke pillars or something like that? Yeah, I mean, like when they get a new pope, they do a different color and stuff, don't they? Maybe we oh, just need. Oh, we could do that. And, like I don't know whether they've already stolen the color purple. I'd need to check, but um yeah. I don't think it's unreasonable. I want like little purple smoke bombs to go off every time there's an ableism. Yeah, like a little
1: firecracker. Like, oh. Yeah, you did an ableism, boom. There's another one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So, I always think about how the general public perceive disability if you're not disabled. And I always think that comes along with a lot of questions, right? So there's always gonna be the weird and wonderful questions. And I was wondering, for you in particular, do you get weird and wonderful questions about your disability? And if you do, are there ones that repeatedly come up where you think, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm having this conversation again. Or you've got like a really quick witted remark to like nip it in the bud because I'm still working on my
0: quick remarks and it's just not happening for me. I mean, I often practice them in advance. Um, so like every single day. Uh, do, you, do you not talk to the mirror, Brooke? No, just me, just me. Okay. like you do. Um, <laughs> I'm a planner. I'm a planner. Um, <laughs> so, like, every single day, a patient will ask why I'm using a stick or why I'm using a wheelchair. And it might just be something as small as, you know, have you been in the wars? Or what have you done to yourself then? Or is this an injury? And I generally just kind of go, oh, no, it's a long-term thing. Or, uh, yeah, this is a permanent fixture is my go-to. Oh, no, no, no. The wheelchair is a permanent fixture. yeah, um, And that generally kind of, like, moves it on. And most of the time, I don't mind because I think when – as a clinician when people come into my room there's an instant power dynamic right somebody Mm -hmm. is coming to tell me some potentially some of their innermost secrets that they've never told anyone and they're walking into a room to tell a complete stranger who happens to have doctor in front of their name whatever is going on with their lady bits or whatever it might be um that's there's a big power dynamic there and they're asking me for help they're asking me for something um and trying to kind of level that out can be really difficult because I want them to have a say and you know that treatment's not going to work for me or that's not Mm -hmm. something I want to try or I've had bad experiences with that whatever it might be those Mm -hmm. medical discussions should be a partnership and so often they're not but it's something we're Mm -hmm. constantly trying to do more and more of in medicine and I think actually my visible disabilities and particularly when I kind of talk about having ADHD um, which I don't do often but just occasionally I'll kind of go no my brain gets it um yeah. when I'm having those conversations people see me and they go right she gets it she must have seen a doctor yeah. before in her life she knows what it's like to have a body that misbehaves and having that very visible sign of yeah you're in pain a lot too aren't you because you're sat in that thing and you're using that thing and you know mm-hmm. people do like almost immediately kind of come up to that level where we're having a conversation and we're not having a please sir can I have some treatment type conversation yeah so I don't mind it very much at all I get asked that a lot I think the thing that really bothers me are the assumptions of what I can and can't do Mm -hmm. um so you know being told oh you know you can't be a doctor because you've got ADHD or you've got you can't have ADHD because you're a doctor or you can't get to x y and z how do you do that like that really bothers me because I'm somebody that never minds the awkward question. I bloody love awkward questions. My special interest is sexual well being. Like, I bloody love talking about sex and stuff mm-hmm. that people don't feel comfortable talking about a lot because I think that's where the most interesting stuff is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those conversations and the relationships you build around that are so fascinating and can be so powerful. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind people asking questions very much. In fact, when I do speaking gigs, I often kind of go, judgment-free zone, ask me what the hell you like. This doesn't give you carte blanche to go and ask any disabled people what the hell you like. Yeah. It's, this isn't the kind of government's ask me anything type nonsense that mm. mm-hmm. made me so cross. But as somebody who is very aware that she has a lot of privilege, is very confident, honestly doesn't care what you think, either way most of the time yeah um I don't mind if you ask a question and you phrase it wrong I don't mind if you want to know x y and z about how you know transport works as a disabled people as a disabled person whether you have sexual relationships as a disabled person I might not tell you about my own sex life in graphic detail but I'm willing to kind of give you the basics Mm -hmm. I am happy to put myself in that position and I'm happy to kind of create that conversation because I think a lot of the anxiety around disability that people who are non-disabled have about approaching us is they don't want to get it wrong yeah I fundamentally have to believe that people are good and they don't want to offend us the majority of the time and when people act strangely around us when people don't make eye contact with us when people like are really clearly uncomfortable that often comes from a place of just not knowing how to respond. And if I, in my all my gobbiness, um, my disgusting amount of confidence can give them the space to just ask those questions, mm-hmm. that's something that me with all my privilege can do, and I'm happy to. That doesn't mean it's something I would expect any other disabled person to take on if they're not feeding up to it. And there are always going to be some days I don't want to, and I just go, can we park this and move yeah. on?
1: Yeah.
0: But I think I'm very grateful that I have, ability in that space a lot of the time to do that um so I don't generally mind the weird and wonderful questions um the kids ones are the best because kids will just kind of take your answer and they'll go why do you have a wheelchair I'm like, well sometimes my legs like to do things I don't really want them to and I'm just safer when I'm sat down and they're like all right and they'll climb on my lap and you know start drawing Mm -hmm. pictures or whatever it is and that's fine conversation closed um and I love that I love kind of giving them that space to do that so it's rare that I get stressed by the question but some of them are cracking like undoubtedly hilarious
1: (laughs) I like what you say though about you like you you can be a judgment-free zone and it's an open space to ask conversation and have that open dialogue because I don't think a lot of people I think you're you're absolutely right when it when you come to talking about how the general public don't want to have conversations because they don't want to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And and it's awkward. It is so awkward yeah. having a conversation where you don't really know your topic or you don't know how to approach a situation and you feel like you're fumbling over your words. Lord knows that we've all been in those situations where it's, you just want the ground to swallow you up because it's just awkward but I love that you're very open enough to be like, look, you're going to get it wrong, but actually like, I'd rather you ask the questions wrong and I can maybe point you in the right directions uh, and yeah. maybe give you some pointers and some tips how to we ask this question maybe in a better way we can st- construct this question better together. But that's a really lovely place to be where you can be like, actually, it's a judgment-free zone. I like, Ask me what you want, but equally that doesn't mean that it's the same for every single disabled person yeah. because I think quite often as disabled people we are expected to give our medical history our life story how oh, we became gotcha. disabled all 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 of the things that are surround our disability we're expected to almost just like hand out an information sheet and it's mm-hmm. and it's almost like just make sure that this doesn't happen to you because that's that's essentially what they want to know right is right. how how do you avoid it mm-hmm. and and shock horror you can't
0: oops, yeah like have better I, genetics i
1: yeah <laughs> and, and I love, but I love that about being a judgment-free zone because I think so many people could learn so much from that because I think there's a lot of angry people who instantaneously will take what someone has said and interpret it the wrong way or they haven't actually thought about how the person might be feeling. Even though it's not necessarily worded in the best way possible, that might just be the, wor- the best words that they have.
0: Yeah, I think we tend to assume a lot of underlying knowledge. Because there are so many disabled people, we kind of sit there going, it's not acceptable that people don't know this. And to an extent that's right, like people do need to go and educate themselves, like that responsibility is important. But one of the ways people educate themselves is by finding people and resources they can tap into. And I'm happy to be one of those resources. But like I've had really senior, like top four FTSE company execs come up to me and go, in a slightly different context, kind of, can you talk to me about your use of the word queer and how queer works? because I don't know whether it's a word I can say, I don't know whether it's a word I can use to describe you if you use it yourself. And they're sitting there as hugely powerful, influential, very knowledgeable and intelligent people going, I just don't know, and I don't know where to find this information. And I'm happy to be a source for that Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And I think kind of facilitating those conversations is just really important as and when we can in a controlled way, not when the government says a random bus driver can ask me why I'm in a wheelchair. That is not the same thing. <laughs> so it's very interesting
1: that you bring up the ask don't assume thing because I had mm-hmm. a bit of a rant on LinkedIn about it, yeah. and it kind of went down well and also like a sinking ship. So, like my personal interpretation of the ask don't assume is that i like if I don't know you and you randomly come up to me and ask me about my disability, like and says so we're probably not going to have a conversation. I don't owe you any of my answers, but the way mm-hmm. that that campaign was portrayed was very much like, all disabled people will talk to you about their disability. Like, no cold bars. Like, there's you can ask them whatever you want. And actually, mm-hmm. that was incredibly problematic. Yes, disabled people were consulted, but I'm also incredibly aware that the government can spin any information that it's given to suit its own agenda. Yeah. So I don't, I have no hard feelings. I have no bad feelings towards the disabled people involved because I think they did the best with what they were yeah. given. and mm-hmm. And... That's the situation we're in. Yeah. But the ask don't assume thing. Please, like, we don't need to have these conversations. Like you said, like a random bus driver. You don't need to know about my disability. Does it affect no. you in your life? Probably yeah. not. And you don't You don't need to know about mine. Like, no. It's my I personal think, information.
0: This is... So I've spent a lot of time working in politics because, you know, who doesn't need another career, Hannah? Um, And I... <laughs> I lose my mind with frustration at this whole politics by three word hashtag yeah and that's what this is this is a nuanced and complex conversation this is not something you can distill into a three word hashtag somebody will see on a poster and go all right I'll just go and ask that disabled neighbor of mine um how she uses the loot like no that's That's why in, as you say, you know, I love social media, I think it's an incredibly powerful, wonderful tool, but it's so easily used badly, particularly in political spheres. And that's exactly what's happened is we've Mm -hmm. tried to distill a really complicated conversation that needs nuance and education and discussion into a three word hashtag and some pretty posters of disabled people. And I'm like, I have no problem personally with people asking me questions. But they have to be in an appropriate context and I should have the right to go, you know what? I'm not there today. That's not one for today. Mm -hmm. No, sorry, not your, nothing to do with you. Um, And that's where this campaign completely failed. And if you look at like the work of, you know, Dr. Amy Kavanagh, who's done some amazing work around as a uh, blind woman, she's done a lot of amazing work around people who grab her and try and move her to places. And she did this fantastic campaign of Just Ask, Don't Grab, which is nuanced. And she's been yeah. educating people on it for years. And it's like the government have kind of taken that and gone, we're oh, it's okay. It. Let's let's put some posters on a three word hashtag. And that's basically the same thing isn't it. No, no, it's mm-hmm. not. And if I were her, I'd be blooming livid. I'm sure she probably yeah. is. But <laughs> yeah, it's so frustrating when, you know, disabled led pe- groups and disabled individuals are doing this work. And then the government has taken it and tried to turn it into something it was never meant to be and just distilled it into the worst version.
1: Yeah, and said, that's it. Getting
0: off the accessible soapbox.
1: <laughs> but that, but that is true. It's it's like the worst version of what was actually meant to be said. And that's I think that's the bit that stings, is that actually there's so much nuance in it and you have to appreciate the nuance. And sometimes the general population doesn't necessarily understand nuance.
0: You don't give it to them. Like... You know, if you get, as I say, a pretty poster of a disabled person with ask, don't assume written on the top. What are you going to take from that? Yeah. You're going to take it's OK to ask this disabled person why they look like that or why they move like that. or Why they talk like that, mm-hmm. because we're not giving them the education. We're not having the discussion. We're just slamming some stuff out on social media and going, look, we thought about disabled people, aren't we? Great. Big old pat on the back. They should listen to this podcast because they'd learn so much, honestly. They really would. And I think, you know, one of the big frustrations is that that came out at a time when we know that violent hate crime against disabled people has gone up 27%. I'd rather they put the money into trying to improve that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's more of
0: a priority, personally. Um, But yes, soapbox. I am getting off it now, I promise. No, but it's great. It's (laughs) great to have these conversations.
1: I think a lot of people don't really realise particularly around politics, like how impactful politics can be in the perception of disabled people. And particularly when we're looking at like media, like how many times have we seen the Benefit scrounger story rehashed, Mm -hmm. replayed, dressed up, dressed down, given a new name, but actually it all comes down to the same thing that all disabled people are scroungers and they can't work and they can't do this and the next thing. And then all of a sudden you see a disabled person who is working and people are pissed off because they can't do it as quickly as like, the non-disabled and you're, and you're and it get, it actually really nicely ties back to what we were saying about you're either a really good disabled person good mm-hmm. in like you know air quotes you know you're the Paralympian you're an inspiration or you're you're destitute and you're down and out there's like there's no in between it and there's no space yeah. for the in-between
0: yeah oh, that was very neatly tied together I'd love to say I planned that but I think that was definitely all you <laughs> uh, I'm I'm going to take the credit for that. <laughs> Definitely
1: should. Definitely should. <laughs> I only have one final question for you, and that is, Doctor Hannah, are you disabled and proud? Oh hell's yes!
0: Like no question. I um Again, it's okay to be mad at your body and your brain sometimes, and still be proud. The two aren't yeah. mutually exclusive, and I think that's so important. Like being having ADHD has made me incredibly curious incredibly good at reading people um and quite an empathetic human being and being a wheelchair user has given me a whole new insight but also given me a whole new community and fabulous people around me so yeah I'm bloody proud of that um and that doesn't mean you know I'm inspiration porn that just means I'm a freaking amazing human being as I am my love (laughs) oh
1: thank you touch my heart love that I have genuinely loved this conversation today because it's covered so many nuanced topics that actually we don't always get to talk about. And mm-hmm. and it's been done in such a way that actually I like to think that this conversation was like an open book and that if anybody had any questions to ask, they could probably just drop us a message at some point. But I really <laughs> want to thank you for that because... It's been such a lovely, open and honest conversation, particularly surrounding career, particularly surrounding like medicine. And, and quite often we don't have those open conversations within medicine because it's one of those things that's seen as quite scary to even enter. Or, yeah. or you know, we all have mm-hmm. like medical gaslighting stories that aren't particularly nice yeah. to delve into. So I really want to thank you for for creating that space and, and having this conversation with me because I've absolutely loved it.
0: No problem. Anytime. This has been really fun. Thank you. Oh, thank you
1: thanks for listening to this episode of disabled and proud if you've enjoyed the show then please give it some love by leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts it really helps us to reach more and more people each week plus if you've got a particular highlight then i'd absolutely love to hear it tag me on your insta stories
0: at disabled and proud podcast